two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I am joined by Michael Geist. He is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. He is also a privacy and internet advocate who has received many awards, including being appointed to the Order of Ontario in 2018. Today, he joins us to speak about the privacy implications that are either being ignored or bypassed as we attempt to contain COVID-19 and how this could become a slippery slope for a post-COVID-19 world. Hello, Professor Geis, and thank you for joining us. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me. So there are many governments around the world that are using data, particularly cell phone data, to help contain COVID-19. And this has ruffled a few feathers here and there. In a recent article, you wrote that during this time of crisis, the, the issue isn't so much about whether we should use the data or not, but under what circumstances and with what safeguards and oversight. Can you tell us what circumstances, safeguards, and oversights you recommend for using this type of data? Sure, I'm happy to. And I think I'd just start by noting that, you know, I think there, there are certainly some in the privacy and civil liberties community who, you know, whose initial response or reaction to the prospect of increased data collection or these kinds of uses is to recoil a little bit and say, this raises some, some significant concerns. And I think they're right, it does. Uh, but at the same time, I, certainly my view, and I suspect the view of many others, is that you know, we are truly living in an unprecedented time. The, the economic impact that we're facing, the health impact that we're facing, all these things, of course, are, are, are enormous and ones that for, I think, the vast majority of, of people, and certainly people listening to this, uh, have never experienced in their lifetimes. And if there are ways that technology can help mitigate against some of these harms, then I think we ought to be exploring them. At the same time, I think those that are concerned with the prospect of increased, in effect, cell phone-based surveillance as a counter to what we see taking place with COVID-19. Uh, their concern is, how do we find ways to ensure that this is temporary? How do, we, how do we find ways to ensure that we are doing all the things that don't necessarily implicate this kind of usage before we jump into the usage? How do we try to find ways to ensure that, to the extent possible, this is an opt-in, consent-based system so that people can say, this is something that I'd like to contribute to or that I'd like to uh, have access to this information, including use, using some of my own information, uh, so that this is not happening without their consent, but rather is happening with it. And I think there are a whole series of things that, that we can do as we move forward to try to address some of these issues. And one just off the top is, in fact, to move towards opt-in-based models. And we have started to see a number of countries talking about 
the prospect of an opt-in based model for people who would like warnings about the prospect that they are in close proximity to someone who may have contracted the virus and thus can take steps to try to mitigate against uh, potentially catching it. And, you know, the, the way this is envisioned is that if we had an opt-in system where people would use their cell phones to, uh, to install an application again with their consent, knowing that uh, this would include tracking information, location-based information, as is often the case with our cell phones, and that there might be a warning that would raise if someone else using the same app who, of course, had also opted in and had also uh, then indicated that, in fact, that they, they had the virus, uh, that would allow the app to essentially inform or provide a warning to users. And that kind of system would be a wholly opt-in-based model system, one in which everybody using the app would have effectively said, yes, I consent to this particular usage for the broader public health benefits that would accrue to all the various users. And given the widespread concern that we have today, there are many that might say, yes, that's something that I'm willing to participate in. There are also health considerations to keep in mind here. It's not just about tracking where a person is, but it's also about sharing a person's information on, on their, their health, which presents privacy issues now. How can that be safeguarded as well? It's, I know you're talking about temporary measures, but at the same time, do you think people would be willing to just sort of say, by the way, I've been diagnosed or I've been confirmed as, as having COVID-19? Well, that's a fair question. I mean, I think we've seen a number of different proposals that have come, out, come up. Um, I think to answer the direct question, I actually think the answer is yes. Um, and I think that in part because if we take a look at the, the spread, this is not for many going to be th some sort of outlier. As this grows as quickly as it does, we are talking about, at least on a North America-wide basis, millions of people that will have this virus. So um, I don't know that there's a stigma. I don't think that there will necessarily be a stigma associated with this as much as it is uh, a recognition that this is a, a dangerous and enormously problematic uh, public health concern that has touched many, many people, oftentimes, of course, without knowing it. Uh, there are challenges there, too, because sometimes in many instances, people may have the virus but be asymptomatic, which raises its own set of concerns. But uh, I don't think that there's necessarily a stigma associated with it, or there certainly won't be as time goes by, because so many people will have had the virus. I think there is a recognition amongst many that until we get a handle on this, society as a whole um, is, going to, is, is going to face some of the really onerous conditions that, that many people are facing. And I think that's at the heart of sort of the stay-at-home efforts that we've seen, recognizing that we need everybody participating in this as a mechanism to try to obtain greater control over the virus itself. Now, in terms of the data collection issues that we've been talking about, again, there are different types of potential uses here. So we talk, for example, potentially of trends-based usage to try to get a better handle on 
growth of the virus, outbreaks of the virus in different places. And this, this might well happen sort of in the next wave, not in the current wave that we're dealing with, but in subsequent waves. And if that's the case, the, the data doesn't necessarily have to be, doesn't have to be at all personally identifiable. It's the aggregate data that really matters. And so while it's being collected on a personal basis, the use of it is on an aggregate basis and it is not necessarily personally identifiable. In other instances, admittedly, there are personally identifiable uses and, you know, different societies are going to make different choices. Uh, we see, for example, this coming up in the context of self-quarantining rules and whether or not they're being followed. And we've seen some countries that have tried to use location-based data from cell phones to identify whether or not someone who has been required to self-quarantine is respecting the rules. You know, as we follow the news and it moves so quickly, we're seeing countries increasingly take tougher measures to try to enforce some of these self-quarantining rules, recognizing that not everybody is abiding by them. And so one can certainly see the prospect of saying we're not getting the kind of compliance levels that we need. This is harming everyone and we need additional steps to try to, to deal with it. And that's where some of the tough trade-offs will come, admittedly. And that's why I think at its heart, it's not necessarily about saying no to these kinds of collection and uses. It's about what sorts of safeguards do we put into place in the event that we do see benefits um, and we say that those benefits outweigh the harm so long as we've got safeguards in place. And one of those safeguards you had mentioned in that article is that these measures should be temporary just for the duration of COVID-19. But I have a question on that, which is, what if it doesn't become that? What if it becomes a slippery slope and these initially temporary measures become permanent? Well, that is unquestionably, I think, a significant risk. And uh, I think you're right to highlight it. And I think uh, many who look at this are right to have some amount of skepticism as to whether or not measures that come on up uh, in times of crisis don't become the new normal. I think it's on issues like that, that it is incumbent on many concerned about privacy and civil liberties uh, to continue to to be vocal about the need to ensure that any new measures are in fact temporary. Um, there are ways to ensure that that happens. And, and one of the ways that you at least try to ensure that there is a bias towards a temporary approach as opposed to one that has some amount of permanence is that any of the kinds of measures that do raise these significant concerns would only be valid for a short period of time and would be and there would be a renewal required every time and so that the default built into the legislative approach would be one that it, it is temporary let's say two weeks at a time and there was a requirement of renewal every two weeks so that while it may be something that stays with us for a period of time, it's also one that there must be a proactive decision to renew and the period of time for those renewals is made sufficiently short that it is always viewed in that sort of short-term type basis. What is it that the community of open government, open data practitioners and concerned citizens, I guess, as a whole, can do to ensure that the government doesn't fall in love with those temporary measures? Well, I think the community unquestionably has to be vocal. I think transparency is an absolutely critical component 
to this process. And, and I think, in fact, the only way that you can get public confidence and buy-in into a system that is, I think you've rightly pointed out, raises some significant privacy-related concerns, is to ensure that there is appropriate and full transparency and oversight. And I think as, as part of that, um, part of it is a full clarity on what the government uh, has been, what the government is doing, how the data is being used, in what way it's being used. This, this is not comparable to, let's say, some of the kinds of scenarios that we've experienced in the recent past, let's say, around an issue such as security, where there is at times a reluctance for government to disclose some of the information, arguing that there are security-based reasons uh, for not for not engaging in those disclosures. This is quite different. This is one where I think full public information is is essential. And, and as we record this, we're seeing this play out in Canada right now, where there is mounting concern amongst many that the government has not been even sufficiently forthcoming around some of the scenarios that it has about how long this is going to take, how many people may be infected, how many people may die due to the virus. Uh, and we're seeing that in contrast to some other countries that have at least revealed some of uh, those models and scenario building. And I think that we're seeing quite rightly a lot of concern from the public saying, you know, you are asking the public to take on you know, some, some extraordinary measures here. I mean, we, you know, we're talking of course about basic fundamental rights, such as the right to privacy, but we are all giving up other rights along the same time. Some of the core freedoms that we rely upon freedom of assembly and others are ones that we are losing in this process for the good of trying to address this public health crisis. And so there needs to be full government transparency. And um, admittedly, the, the government is racing on these issues, but there is reason, I think, for some amount of skepticism, because even on something as straightforward as what are, what are the models that you are using to base some of this decision making? At least as we're having this discussion, some of that information has been provided directly by the Canadian government. And I think it was just today or yesterday, Jesse Hirsch, the Canadian futurist and technologist, was talking about this is the kind of stuff that you want to give the public because if we are um, unaware or uninformed, that can create just as much panic as withholding that information. Would you agree with that perspective? Well, I certainly would agree that I think that there's a significant that, that there's significant reason for con, for concern about uh, the lack of information that's being disclosed on that particular issue, and and I and I and I agree that it doesn't inspire confidence for Canadians. I mean, I must admit, I think for people that are following these issues closely, I suspect whatever when we do get these models because we will get them at some point in time hopefully sooner rather than later they won't come as a huge surprise i mean if you are following this closely if you're following the math closely you know the situation isn't good you've seen the modeling in other jurisdictions including now the united states you've seen the outcomes in other jurisdictions that are in a sense a little bit ahead of us on this curve and so while i think it will be useful to get this information um, it will only come as a surprise to people who haven't been paying close attention to what's been happening for the last several months. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about as weird or as morbid as it may sound, that the opportunity that COVID-19 has presented, particularly the open government and the open data movements, in that 
we can take this time and essentially create a new foundation for a post-COVID-19 world, one that's more based on, say, 21st century principles and philosophies as opposed to sort of the, the old ways of doing things. Do you think there's any validity behind that line of thought? I certainly think that, you know, oh, I say this. I think the societal changes that this is sparking and will continue to spark uh, are almost incalculable. I mean, they're massive and they cut across so many different places and so many different aspects of our daily lives that there's, there's every reason to believe that these changes are going to impact, you know, everything from the way that we educate, the way that we engage in commerce, the way that we think about our healthcare system, the way we engage in global trade and the way in which we uh, think about issues around open government um, and access to information. And so, of course, I think there are opportunities there. I, I don't I, I don't like to think of it necessarily as an opportunity, but uh, as you may know, I've been doing a, I do a podcast as well. And if I think about some of the episodes that, that I've been putting on lately, they focused on how COVID-19 has, I think, put the spotlight on certain issues where there may have been a need for policy change. And this, in some ways, really emphasizes that. So that's around, let's say, open access to research information, where there's mm -hmm. this you know, obviously big rush to do that. Uh, open educational resources to ensure that copyright doesn't become a barrier to distance learning and other educational opportunities. And so I think you're absolutely right in raising the prospect of of a fundamental rethink that may happen in many aspects of our society, or even if it's not a rethink, it's at least a, a move towards new ways of doing things, new ways of engaging with, with any range of different activities, because if this lasts as long as many of the experts suspect it will, the, the immediate uh, crisis, of course, may last hopefully not, you know, through to the summer. That's it's hard to believe I'm saying hopefully, but, you know, the numbers, the data that we see in the, much of the experts seem to point to June, July timeframe. But, you know, regardless of what that time frame is, we know that many of the experts have, have emphasized that there will be subsequent waves until we reach the point that there is vaccines and other medical treatments. So this is going to be with us for a while. And I think this is going to continue to push us towards new ways of doing things as, as, it, as we begin to integrate some of that new kind of thinking and innovation as we grapple with this issue um, for many weeks and, and conceivably months. Now, you're not just a, a privacy advocate. You're also an internet advocate. And I think that one of the things that COVID-19 has demonstrated is the need for a na nationwide access to broadband internet. And I don't just mean sort of the northern reaches of Canada, but in urban centers also. So, for example, the closing of libraries has cut off many at-risk people from getting relevant and speedy information. What can and maybe what should be done to make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future. Right. Well, I mean, I guess I would start by saying when it comes to connectivity and access, this for anyone that's been engaged in some of these issues, this will, will this is not a surprise. Uh, many have been advocating for universal, affordable access to broadband services for literally decades in Canada. And the fact that we still have not reached that point, that there are still some that find affordable broadband access out of reach, either because it simply isn't available in their community, which sometimes occurs 
in some rural communities and sometimes even communities close to some uh, more urban centers, but they just kind of fall through the cracks. Uh, as well as concerns around pricing, uh, I think is a very real concern. And you know, I think this has, if, if anything, this has highlighted our enormous dependence on our communications networks and the fact that those that have argued for many, many years about the need for more competition, more affordability, better affordability, uh, and universal access, um, I think have been have been pointing to a core policy issue that that we face in this country and it's not just us but of course it's it's certainly we're part we're part of the that that global universe that really does require does depend upon global connectivity and we have moved i think too slowly on this you know we governments successive governments liberal and conservative have set targets those targets often uh envisioned five years ten years down the line the latest one, of course, speaks to 2030 as the timeline for certain kinds of connectivity. And, and that just strikes me as, as inadequate. I mean, we're seeing that play out right now where there is a need for universal affordable access right now. You're talking about how the Canadian government has moved slowly on this. And as part of my research for this interview, I actually fell on an article that you wrote in 2012, and it was called the tax-free six-step approach to a digital economy strategy. And it was as a response to then industry minister Paradis digital economy strategy file that was dubbed the Penske file due to years of work with no results. And by the way, I love the Seinfeld reference there, but in that article, you stated that many Canadians need access to, to not just broadband, but digital training or digital literacy skills. It's been eight years since you wrote that article. Are you happy with the efforts when it comes to digital literacy, not just access to broadband? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, certainly the Penske file column uh, was a fun one to write. I remember it well, and I certainly remember both the episode on Seinfeld as well as the line well. Um, listen, I, I think there have been many, many initiatives around digital literacy, but we're still clearly not there. Uh, and all you have to do is go on uh, just about any large Zoom conference right now uh, just to see the number of people struggling with the basic technology and whether the microphone is on or off and <laughs> the range of different things taking place to know that a lot of these tools are still very new to people and they are still struggling to to make use of it. And uh, there are risks that come out of that. You know, if you think of some of the misinformation that's that's come out around the coronavirus and sometimes this gets spread and really relies upon people who may not be as technologically savvy. Uh, who, and therefore may be a bit more gullible and susceptible to this kind of misinformation. So uh, there remains a, a, a real need for us to ensure that there is that kind of, that there is full digital literacy as well as that full connectivity. There are lots of programs out there. Um, oftentimes you see it at, at the local level, uh, but if we're being honest about it, the demand still outstrips the supply. You know, I can tell you that for, for quite a number of years, I was on the board of the Canadian Internet Registration Authority, CIRA, which governs the .ca. Uh, and as part of that, was actively involved in a fabulous program that the organization runs called the Community Investment Program. And my recollection is that we received so many uh, digital literacy type programs 
quite literally from program from communities across the country. And it was simply impossible to fund them all, even though we had a significant, you know, we had, we had resources and we were willing to fund some, but you just, you couldn't keep up with the demand. And I think that's the sense is that is still the case. Situation gets better and better, but uh, we're definitely still not there yet. Is this an issue of government funding or do you believe that when it comes to digital literacy, there has to be other partners involved? That's a great question. I mean, I guess my experience to date is that this isn't a one size fits all approach. I think there is a role for governments and frankly, a role for governments at all levels to play. I'd love to see the federal government and the provincial governments playing some supporting some of the funding on some of the on some of these kinds of programs providing standards if necessary providing modeling i think one of the great things that we could do is is create uh, open resources for some of for these learning initiatives and and you find some of these already that are openly licensed under say creative commons licenses so that they can be freely used and reused by others and uh, that's there's that that's the role at a certain level for those governments, but very often this is a very much uh, uh, something that takes place at the local level. It's in our schools, in our community centers, um, in our in our in our other places where we gather when we're not in a stay-at-home moment like it, like we are right now. Uh, and it's many of those kinds of people active in the community that are best placed to deliver some of these programs and what they need are the resources and support to do so. You yourself are an educator and you're talking about that this has to be involved much more on the local level. Have you had any experiences working with either high schools or teachers colleges or district school boards in adding much more digital literacy within sort of their curriculum? And is it because in some of my experiences, sometimes I speak to individuals within those sectors that are just as illiterate when it comes to digital as anybody else. So they're not well positioned to talk about digital literacy. Is there a kind of teach the teacher element that's missing, at least in Canada, for all this? There are initiatives that take place without doubt. And, and, you know, I think it really was that experience that I had with CIRA that was for me in some ways the most informative because I saw the proposals, I saw what was taking place. I think our educators recognize the value that comes with this. I think many of our um, many of our kids have some of these skills. In fact, one of the things, at least in terms of some of the basic online stuff, although being able to better weed out the valuable from the invaluable, the the credible from the stuff that is quite some instances quite literally incredible and and should not be believed. Those are the kinds of skills that um, still I think are are quite necessary. And then there are people throughout society, our older generations who are still new to the technology, and even other people who uh, may not be older, but just you know for whatever reason in their in their job uh, and in their life, technology hasn't played a significant role yet. They find themselves increasingly you know, facing the need to, to use it. And that, that I think is the sort of thing that is happening for a lot of people right now at a stay at home moment where we are more and more dependent than ever on this technology. And for some, there's a steep learning curve taking place right now. And how we think of this in the future, once this, this is, this comes to an end, 
uh, I think will help inform. You, asked, you started this off by asking what are the kinds of opportunities or things we'll be thinking about once this is done. And I think this is really one of those areas where we're going to see a lot of that take place. So I want to go back a little bit into our interview where we talked a bit about health and just health data and what people are sharing uh, to help, say, control the spread of COVID-19. But even prior to COVID-19, there were plenty of private companies that offered services based on the collection of health data. And I'm talking about companies like Fitbit, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Where did you stand on those companies collecting that health data with essentially no regulations to control how and what they do with that data afterwards? Yeah, no, I mean, those kinds of, those sorts of data collections, I know, raised a lot of concerns for a lot of people. And there were some that said they simply wouldn't use some of these services. At the same time, I think that, you know, this COVID-19 has highlighted how there is the potential for value with with some of these technologies. A, a good example is the Kinsa, which is a smart thermometer where people, which comes with an app, people put in fever information uh, as part of using the app. And part of what comes out of that is with more than a million of these, at least in the United States, there's the ability to track spikes in fever in different places across the country. And that has proven enormously valuable, uh, hmm. particularly at this moment in time where we can actually see growth rates that are likely attributable to COVID-19 taking place sometimes even before people are being tested for it because it's in the fever data. So the challenge that we face, and I think this is true for so many of these services, is how can we benefit from some of these kinds of technologies? How can we benefit from some of the data? Because there is the, there are opportunities there, while at the same time ensuring that the potential drawbacks, harms that can take place uh, are mitigated and, and properly addressed. And, you know, for me in Canada, one of the real concerns we've had is that our privacy laws haven't really kept pace. And so there has been a call for some time about the need for privacy reform in Canada. The law that we have right now, PIPITA, is, as I'm sure you all know, dates back to the late 1990s. There have been some very modest tinkering over the couple of decades since the law was introduced. But the need for stronger provisions, for tougher penalties, are the sorts of things the government was talking about before this. Uh, it feels like this may get it may get put on the on the back burner, like so many other policy issues, is, uh, the next while is obviously going to be focused exclusively on the public health crisis. But when things go back to normal, uh, I think this will help again emphasize that there are real benefits to some of these technologies and uh, the data that can arise from it. I think that uh, we're kidding ourselves if we sort of say this, these are just evil sorts of technologies and people without regulation and and there's a concern there I, I i do see the benefits the challenge is how can we have the benefits while at the same time addressing the very real harms and uh, that can arise and that's where i think the concerns around uh, a regulatory free zone arises and where you end up with a real need to seek to address them yeah in many of my recent podcast episodes i've keep using the reference of we have two paths in front of us it's a very reductive statement but one of them is sort of the hunger games kind of route and the other one is star trek the next generation 
and we sort of see Star Trek The Next Generation as, as a very utopian kind of ideal world. But in that world, the computer knows where you are all the time. They're tracking you through your communicators. There's a lot of sort of privacy trade-offs that have been made, but it seems as though it works well in that arena. And I would be fascinated to know what the Federation of the Star Trek put into place to protect its citizens against misuse of data. So maybe it's just sort of me talking fanciful here, but I want to have your, your perspective on this. Well, I think the, you know, it, it, sometimes this does feel science, science uh, the sort of, the sort of science fiction, um, the, you know, and the, one of the challenges that I think we faced with some of these issues is to try to provide context, try to provide a sense that these are real world issues and that we aren't talking about the science fiction. In fact, some of the problems I think sometimes that arises is that we emphasize too much sort of and experience these things on the basis of, you know, science fiction, popular literature, the, the Star Treks or Star Wars of the world. Um, and so it seems like the stuff of fiction and people struggle to recognize that, in fact, some of these issues are very real issues today. Yeah. And actually, along those lines, I'm curious to know, what do you think of the series, TV series Black Mirror? I think it's, you know, it's certainly it's been a popular one for many of my students. And I think some of the episodes are have been eye-opening. Actually, we were talking about it around the dinner table just the other day. And, uh, the, you know, I think those kinds of, though, some of those, some of the episodes in particular have, you know, sometimes felt, they feel fanciful, but they also provide, I think, a bit of a wake-up call for, you know, for the notion that, you know, the, the technology raises great opportunities, but also real risks. And that if taken to an extreme down one path or another can raise some real concerns that we need to be alive to. And, you know, that's where I often believe that uh, regulation and, um, and an, and an active engaged informed public becomes absolutely essential. It's interesting because I'm actually a big fan of the show and, and in particular it's, uh, creators, uh, Michael, um, uh, Charlie Brooker, and I forget uh, the other co-creator's name, something that Charlie Brooker has said in many interviews that Black Mirror is a show that's set in the near future, but is worried about today. That's what's so amazingly confusing and distressing and awesome about technology is that these companies like Facebook and Fitbit are so darn convenient. They're so good at what they do but we can't get too enamored with them too fast. Well, I think, I, and, I, and I think those are great points. You know, I, I, you know, Zoom provides, I think, a really good illustration as, we, as we're chatting and we're seeing this, the growth rates of you know, both the opportunities, but also the risks that come with it. And what matters, in my view, isn't that we are perfect from day one when it comes to some of these technologies, but rather that we are responsive to them and have a willingness to address them and that there are the right incentives sometimes through regulation to ensure that companies get this right. You know, we've seen this flood towards Zoom usage. The company, I think, I think just today said that it moved from roughly uh, 10 million users to 200 million users literally in the span of a month. Uh, it's remarkable mm -hmm. to see that, that kind of growth rate take place. And 
in the last number of days as we record this, we've seen a bit of a backlash around privacy, around security. And the company's response has been to say that we're going to stop all the new feature building and focus for the next 90 days exclusively on privacy and security related concerns. I think that's the right response. And I think it also reflects that, you know, expecting a company that, that was having 10 million users to get every single thing right from day one, when quite literally overnight, it blows up to a 200 million user app, I think is, is, a, is an unreasonable expectation. And so, you know, everyone is going to, you know, at times make, make mistakes. I think, you know, usability becomes important. I think business models that are reflective of respect for users and obviously compliance with the law are essential. Um, and so in some ways, what matters is, do we have the right framing as companies build this initially? And then do we have the ability to ensure that companies respond effectively where mistakes uh, or shortcomings are identified? And that's the unfortunate part because it seems as though many companies have that ingrained in their culture, the ability to be agile and responsive. Government, on the other hand, is not. Uh, you mentioned PIPADA earlier and how it's had a few you know, changes here and there in the last 20 years, but for the most part, it hasn't really adapted much to the 21st century. Do you have any recommendations for government, both elected and public servants, on how they can be much more agile and responsive, especially now as we're trying to contain COVID-19? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. And I think, you know, I, I was having this conversation with a colleague uh, just yesterday. I think that the current situation has highlighted both uh, opportunities, but also the challenges that government itself faces in this environment. I mean, we are seeing policies rolled out that in any normal circumstance takes years years. And they are doing it in the span of days. You know, I think you think of a $70 billion program to assist businesses to try to keep as many people on the payroll as possible. You see some of the other programs that are out there to assist those that have lost their jobs. And, you know, th these are the sorts of things that in any normal environment, I mean, you talk about agility in any normal environment, we would be having proposals and then we would be having consultations and then we would have, this, have, uh, proposed structure put out there, we would have hearings on it, it would be tweaked and adopted, it would be debated. And that process can sometimes be frustratingly slow. And we find people find this process is taking a year or two or more. And our response often is how come government can't move faster? Well, we're seeing what happens when government does move faster. And it, in fact, in a public health crisis, it can move faster. And I have to say, I think the government is moving incredibly quickly or as quickly as it can on some of these issues. But when you do that, mistakes are going to get made too. And so the initial response to some of these programs has been frustration. You're still not moving fast enough. You haven't included this. You haven't included that. In fact, government is going to be heading back to the House of Commons because the bill that they passed, C-13, to deal, to deal with COVID-19, didn't include the structure that is now envisioned for this business support program. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, part of the challenge is how do we find a way certainly to move faster, but at the same time to ensure that it is sufficiently deliberative that we get it right as much as possible the first time. And so I think somewhere between doing this on a day-to-day -day basis and literally changing policy, 
sometimes it feels like on a daily or certainly on a weekly basis to the yearly basis that sometimes it takes for some of these very large policies to develop. We've got to, I think we've got to find a way to move faster, but at the same time, recognize that there are real benefits from a more deliberative, inclusive, consultative process. And we don't want to lose all of that in the rush to say we need to be able to be more agile and move faster. One of the um, core elements and ways of doing things in the agile community is the idea of failing forward. So in order to be responsive and be quick, you also have to be willing to make mistakes and be able to respond and address those mistakes as quickly as you can and adapt from there. A lot of the times when government fails, it becomes a scandal. And as such, it sort of puts the turtle back into its shell and and they're afraid of, of trying and experimenting because if they fail, then the media, the public, the opposition government, the official opposition, I mean, will get on their case. How do you reconcile these issues? Another really, really good question. And uh, I think you're, I think you're, again, right to highlight it. And I don't know that there is a good answer for this either. I think that we often find in, in, in the current environment that there are real challenges with respect to the perception, at least within government, that fail, that failure um, carries such large penalties that you create a almost inherent conservatism, small c conservatism when it comes to policy measures, because failing is seen as worse than doing nothing. And on the one hand, I think we have to find a way to get past that, that private sector organizations often recognize, all of them will recognize that being innovative will mean at times that things don't work and that's okay. Um, the problem, of course, in the governmental context is that when something doesn't work, you get the media jumping all over it, you get political opponents jumping all over it. And I'm not saying these aren't legitimate stories, but um, they, 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 in a sense, are, can be used and are used to tarnish government. We're seeing it right now with some of the efforts that, that are taking place, which are moving rapidly, but are imperfect. And you know, the extent to which some of those are seen to reflect badly on government, you know, in this current situation, there is no choice but to move quickly and to recognize that you're not going to get it all right. Uh, but in a normal circumstance, the takeaway for some might well be that, you know what, if I do this and there are some mistakes along the way because I'm trying to be innovative and not everything is going to work, I'm going to get criticized for it and it's going to be the proverbial front page of the newspaper and subject matter for future question period and political campaigns and all the different places where these kinds of things tend to show up. The challenge then becomes, you know, how do we insulate a little bit or the, the, you know, the politicians from the criticism, or even if it's not insulation, how do we change or adapt the culture to one that is willing to be innovative, recognizing that with that innovation, there may be great outcomes that surpass our expectations, but there may be instances where things don't work out the way that we wanted, and that's okay. That's part of what it means to operate in a faster-paced, more innovative environment. So we've been uh, we've got to start thinking about wrapping up the episode here, and we've talked about many different elements of privacy and data as it pertains to COVID nineteen, as it pertains to the future. 
but is there anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on yet that you'd like to, to make sure our audience is aware of before we close things out? I think we've highlighted some really, some really important issues on those lines. I think, as, and as we talked about, I think this is touching really every aspect of society. And so, um, and, and that includes some of the intellectual property issues that I think about, whether that's patents and access to medicines. And I think that we, we need to recognize that this, by all accounts, I'm not an epidemiologist, but by all accounts, this is going to be with us for some time, even once we get past the first wave. And the, the challenge will be, how do we not, not fail fast, because we sure don't want to be failing when it comes to these issues, but how do we continue to adapt? And how do we try to find ways to ensure that the public voice is both informed and heard? And that transparency issue that we started with becomes such a crucial one, because I think it's one that addresses both the privacy issues that we raised, it addresses some of the health-related issues that we've, that we've also raised. So I think transparency becomes more important than ever in, in the current environment. And I guess the only other point that, that, that I would make is that you know, the, there, there's a, a rush to, to talk about issues, let's say, around privacy, as we've been been doing on this episode. But let's recognize that that some of the kinds of uses that we'll see, some of the privacy implications are ones that we are going to see not necessarily in the next two months, but they're the sorts of things that are going to come up in the fall or perhaps next winter. You know, to the extent to which we end up with follow-on waves of this, it's at that point in time that many of these potential uses may come out of the woodwork. People will have, you know, spent now months in, in, in really tough situations, they may have lost their jobs, and there may be a greater willingness to say, you do whatever you can to ensure we don't have to go through that again. Um, and so the, the privacy considerations and the public voice on these issues to ensure that we've got the right safeguards that we've talked about in place will, at that point in time, I think, become more important than ever. It's funny you're talking about how there are, that this will affect every aspect of society. And in a previous episode, I interviewed Ryan Androsoff, who is a director for leadership and digital government at the Institute on Governance. He's also the co-founder of the Canadian Digital Service Team. And we're talking about telecommuting and teleworking. And he said, and it was an issue that I never considered before, that in a way, telecommuting within especially the public service, it seems to be working right now. But one of the implications is that if it becomes prevalent to the point that everyone wants to do it, that it, that it actually works, now you're left with governments across Canada with all of this infrastructure, like buildings and real estate that are essentially becoming ghost towns. And I was like, that's so true. There's so much brick and mortar out there for housing work. Uh, what are we going to do with all that space? Cineplexes, like the, 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 where you watch the movies. They're starting to close down. You have Amazon Prime that's giving you movies that are in the theaters right away. And all these cineplexes are going to potentially go bankrupt and we'll have all this real estate and all these empty buildings. Those are things that have to be considered as well. They do. I, you know, I, I guess my, my perspective, at least right now, but of course this may change as this moves on, as this goes on for months and months, should that be the case, uh, is that, you know, we will see both some of the amazing things that technology offers up, but we may also find, I think we will find that, that face-to-face opportunities, the kind of, that we are social creatures and that uh, a screen and a Zoom 
webcast or podcast doesn't replace everything. Um, and that we will come to, in many ways, value some of the real space places that we have where we do come together as communities, as families, as friends, uh, more than we ever have, um, given that we will have spent a long time without it. Before we close things out, you are, once again, all over Canada when it comes to privacy and, and data. Are there any projects that you were working on right now that you'd like to tell us a little bit about? Sure. I mean, there's a number and a lot of it, like, like so many people, uh, the projects that I was involved with have taken a bit of a backseat for the moment, but I'm hopeful that uh, I'll be able to come back to them soon. So one of the things that I was focused on very intently was the broadcast and telecommunications legislative review panel report. That's a major report that came out earlier this year that called for a significant overhaul of broadcast and telecommunications legislation. Uh, I had a lot of concerns with it, especially around content regulation and was doing a lot of work on that. It's hit a bit of a pause at least right now, but but certainly hope to come back to it. Same for some of the privacy reform and digital charter related issues. There was a sense the government was going to move forward with some of those issues. And um, the, the major reform stuff are things that, uh, at least for the moment, is, are going to have to wait a little bit. Uh, and so occupying me right now, day to day, in addition to sort of the adjustment period and having family around who uh, usually weren't around nearly as much as uh, they are now, uh, which is a really good thing. It's nice to have the kids back at home. Uh, is that, uh, you know, grappling with some of the digital policy implications of what we're all experiencing. And so that comes out in blog posts, in op-eds, in other research projects, as well as in the, my weekly podcast, Law Bites. Uh, that I that I that I put together. So there's lot. There, there's certainly no shortage of things to become involved with and engaged in. And um, my hope is that you know the that it it can't be coronavirus all the time. And uh, as some of my own students finish up their exams and we move into the summer, uh, we'll have the opportunity to get back to some of the other larger projects that I've been involved with, and um, we'll see some nice stuff coming out and some interesting stuff coming out uh, and use this as an opportunity to be hopefully more productive. Although I will say that I think for everyone, these are tough circumstances to be working in. And sometimes it feels as if you ought to be more productive. Surely. I mean, I'm not engaged in the regular commute and the travel schedule that for me used to be quite busy is obviously completely disappeared for now. But uh, at the same time, the, that time has been filled by other things and um we need to take time for ourselves sometimes too during a, what is a really rough patch for everybody. Well, I want to thank you dearly for taking part in this interview and for being a champion of privacy and internet rights. I'm not sure if you're a fan of Game of Thrones or not, but you continue to be the Canadian Jon Snow and protecting us against legislative white walkers. So, so thank you for that. And I want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment or how to make the podcast better or if there are any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open. <laughs>